And do you remember back in the days when you used to, um, used to go to school and you would play games out in, the, in, in recess and in the playground and you, that pickup game of kickball or stickball or something? There were no officials, uh, there were no referees. And there would be some controversial play that would happen. Like, you weren't sure, did they really touch second base or not? What's going on here? And, and the only way to resolve that was to call for a do-over, a redo, right. Yeah, so, so we would say, okay, there's, everybody's fighting and fussing. We don't know what the right thing to do, so we'll just have a do-over. Everybody have a do-over, and then we'll see what happens. Uh, it's interesting because as we go through life, haven't there been many circumstances in life where you wish you could say, hey, let's have a do-over? Let's just do a redo here. Um, unfortunately, adult life is a little more complicated than uh, elementary school kickball, and we can't often have a do-over. But sometimes maybe we do. We find ourselves with a chance, and we get a fresh start, and we get a chance to start over again. But have you ever had the chance at a do-over only to discover that you needed another do-over? Like, let's try that one. Can we do it one more time over again? Maybe, maybe for some of you here today, uh, maybe that was a failed second marriage. Maybe for some of you, it was a, a new job, and you had a fresh uh, start, a, a new beginning, but you found that your new boss had the same problem your old boss had. <laughs> hmm, that's awfully strange. Maybe for some of you, it was a new school year, and uh, you were starting out, you had a brand new school, brand new teachers, everything, but you had the same problem in school that you had before. And, and when this happens, when we have a chance at a do-over and we find ourselves having the same problems, we have a couple responses. There are a couple realities that could be at play. The first thing is we could choose to find somebody else to blame. And that's really our favorite thing to do. And our culture actually encourages us to do that. You always find somebody else to blame. Isn't it funny how every boss in America has the same problem? You know, I'm right, but every boss in America that I've ever worked for has these same, we find somebody else to blame. Or, or we say, well, there just aren't any good men left in the world, or there just aren't any good women left in the world. And so we can't find anybody, uh, anybody so every, everybody becomes the person that we blame. But the other option that we have is that we can understand that we are the common denominator in all these problems. And every do-over and every fresh start, we're the same that's the same, the thing that is the same. And we can open ourselves up to the possibility that I could be part of the problem. Hmm. But the problem is bigger than just me, and it's bigger than just you, because it's more than just our individual selves and the need for a do-over. Throughout history, our society and culture seems to be constantly looking for a do-over. So you see political revolutions that take place and wars that take place, and we're going to set up a new form of government and it's going to be fair and it's going to be right. Only in two or three generations later, there's another revolution and a desire to start over again. And so elections and people say they're promising a, a fresh start, a, 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 a new beginning. And, and you find that at the end of a four-year term or an eight-year uh, term as president, the next guy saying the same thing. We're going to have a fresh start, a, a new beginning. We keep being offered these do-overs from political forces, new forms of government, uh, elections, revolutions, humans, humans collectively know that something is not right and there has to be a fresh start somewhere. We keep grasping for something to, to do, for some way to begin again, to start over again. In his book, Leaders Eat Last, Simon Sinek quotes a 2013 study done by the CDC 
saying that the suicide rate among baby boomers is up 30% over the past decade. 30%. Only cancer and heart disease kills more baby boomers today than suicide. Today in America, today, more people will die from suicide than from car accidents. What is going on? Every one of those people is desperate for a new beginning. And they have become convinced that their life is hopeless. That they have no other alternative. And so the only thing they can hope for is that maybe something better will happen in the next life. So maybe, or maybe there is nothing next. And that would be a better alternative than living in the situation in which I find myself today. Our culture is craving some sort of a new beginning. We're looking for any way out that we can find. And Cynic, along with other sociologists, predicts there will only be an increase in the rise in suicide, prescription drug abuse, and antisocial behavior. Do you know that in the 1960s, there was only one school shooting? In the 1980s, the entire decade, there were 27. In the 1990s, there were 58. And between the years 2000 and 2012, there were 102 school shootings. That's an increase of 10,000% in 50 years. Something is not right. And everybody knows it. It doesn't matter what your religious background is, what your philosophy is, what your worldview is, what your, it, it doesn't matter. Something is clearly wrong, and there is a desire and a craving for a fresh start, for a new beginning. And here's what Christians believe. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, maybe you're new to church, I'm so glad you're here today. Because I want you to understand what it is that Christians believe. Christians believe that Jesus Christ came into the world with a specific mission, and that mission was to come to make all things new. That Jesus came and he said, I'm coming to give you life and give you abundant life. Jesus came and said, I am offering you as an individual and culture and society as an, as an entity a do-over. In fact, in John chapter 3, Jesus says that you must be born again, a fresh start and a brand new beginning. And what you witness today in baptism is the ancient symbol of that very reality, the promise of that mission being fleshed out and lived 2,000 years later that people still believe they can have a new beginning in Jesus Christ. Here's what the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of Christians. The Apostle Paul uh, took the story of Jesus and kind of carried it outside of Jesus' home country into all the known world. And as he's writing to some Christians, meeting all the way in the city of Rome, here's what he said. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This is the promise that Jesus has made, that you can have a do-over. You can have a new beginning. But here's my question today, because enough of us in here are far enough removed from that experience that we might have asked the question, what about those of us who've been following Jesus and we still feel like the same old problems from our old life have followed us into what is supposed to be a new life? Why is it that I can follow Jesus I can be baptized, and I can wake up tomorrow, and I can still be the same bitter person I was two days ago. I can still struggle with bitterness. Well, why is it that I came to Jesus with an addiction, and I really believe in Jesus, and yet I still struggle with my addiction? Why is it that I came to Jesus with a feeling of guilt and shame over my past, and if I'm honest with you today, I'm still very much ashamed about my past? 
And on a societal level, on a level across our world, hasn't the church had its chance? I mean, we've been working at this for 2,000 years. 2,000 years we've been addressing problems, and 2,000 years later we're still dealing with the problem of sex traffic. The world's oldest profession, we're still dealing with the problem of sex trafficking. Hasn't the church had its chance to do something about the problem, and yet nothing ever seems to change? Is something wrong with me? Maybe I don't believe enough? Is something wrong with the church? Am I not doing something right? Or, or maybe was Jesus just unable to keep his promise? Now these are the same doubts that two sisters faced last week when we looked at John chapter 11. Their names were Mary and Martha. They believed in Jesus. They trusted Jesus. So much so that when their brother Lazarus was sick, they sent word to Jesus. Hey Jesus, our brother Lazarus is sick. Can you come and heal him? And Jesus, the scripture says, waited two days because he loved them. In that time, Lazarus died, and Jesus comes back. It's, it's four days later, and the sisters are confused. What's wrong? What did we do wrong? Is Jesus, does he not love us enough, or is he just not able to do, to, was he not just not able to heal our brother? So if you have a Bible, John chapter 11, we're going to pick up this story in verse 38. And, and I want us to, to kind of get a bigger picture of what's going on uh, in this chapter because it's such an important chapter in John's gospel. And as we get ready for Easter, it is so important for us to get the big picture of what God has been doing, not just in the life of Jesus, but from the beginning of time. John's gospel begins with very familiar words. He says, in the beginning. Now, who can tell me what is another book in the Bible that begins with those words? Genesis, that's right, I saw that hand over there. Genesis, thank you, you were the only one who raised your hand. Genesis is right. God began the whole creation, and he said, in the beginning, and, and, and then you see the story of creation unfold over seven days. John begins his gospel with the same exact word, and it's almost as if John is telling the story over again. He's saying, let's have a do-over. Only this time, rather than creation starting out good and then becoming corrupted by sin leading to death, the story begins with creation already corrupted. The story begins with people already dying. The story begins already in darkness. And John says, into the darkness, Jesus came, the light of the world. And then John begins to unpack what Jesus did, and he did it by showing us seven signs, seven days of creation, seven signs that John wants us to know. Jesus did many, many more miracles, but these seven John chooses to highlight, and they parallel the days of creation. Now, we get to this miracle, the resurrection of Lazarus, and it's the seventh miracle. Everything is hinging on this miracle. John has been building the whole story from John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, until right now he's been pointing to this. Now, the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as I've said many times, all four of these gospels together tell the story of Jesus, but they tell it from individual perspectives. Sometimes they tell the same story, sometimes they tell unique stories. Lazarus' resurrection is only told in the Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not tell 
the resurrection of Lazarus. Now, there's been a lot of speculation why the other Gospels don't tell. Um, I think the answer is is maybe fairly simple, and that is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written pretty quickly after uh, the events of the Gospel took place, after Jesus' resurrection. Lazarus was probably still alive, and Lazarus' life was being threatened by the religious and political leaders of his day. John wrote his Gospel much, much later. So there's a good chance that by the time John is writing his Gospel, Lazarus is no longer in trouble, so John felt free to write the story. So we see Jesus. He's made his way back into Bethany. The sisters have already confronted him. The crowd is already saying, uh, well, he loved this guy. Why didn't he heal him? And so Jesus says, hey, take me to the tomb. And in verse 38, this is what happens. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha The sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Now, how many of you use the King James Version of the Bible? Anybody out there? Okay, King James. This is one of those verses that um, you just can't beat it. It, King James is the best, because in the King James, verse 39 is, Lord, by this time he stinketh. Great. (laughs) Great. Lord, by this time, he stinketh. Now, the reason that Martha is pointing out that Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days is because the Jewish rabbinical teaching during during Jesus' day said that when a person died, their spirit hovered over the body for three days. And so if there was any hope of the person being resuscitated, it would have to happen in three days. Jesus strategically waited. It had been four days. All hope was lost. There was no hope of resuscitation. It had been four entire days. Martha said, Lord, by now he stinketh. Don't move the stone. And then Jesus said to her, Martha, did I not tell you if you believed you would see the glory of God? Martha, we just had this conversation. Do you remember, Martha? Yes, Jesus, I remember the conversation. Martha, do you remember what I said? Yes, Jesus, you said that you are the resurrection, that I'd see my brother again. Yes, But Martha, I am the resurrection right here, right now. Listen to me, Martha. So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. In other words, Jesus, I am doing this for them. I'm doing this so that they can see God, I want, the, I want these people to see your glory. I want them to see the hope of new life that I have come to give. This also is a reminder of us of John's mission in reporting the seven signs. John chapter 20, verse 31. Here's what John said about all these miracles. These are written, these miracles, these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have what? Life. That you may have life in his name. Now, when Jesus raised other people, Jairus' daughter in Mark chapter 5, he did it privately. But this was a very public display. And he understood the consequences of his actions. Because by raising Lazarus from the dead, he was ensuring his own death at the hand of the religious leaders. This would be the final straw. This would begin the journey to the crucifixion right here when he chose to raise Lazarus from the dead. And he did it publicly. What would be a sign leading us to life would only convince others that Jesus had to die. Verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Now I want you to remember something else. 
Go with me back to Genesis. You remember the story, Adam and Eve sinned. And as soon as they sinned, as soon as they ate from the tree that they were told not to eat from, they went, the Bible tells us they went and they hid from God. And God came and he walked in the cool of the evening and he began to call out to Adam. And just as Adam was hiding from God, Lazarus' body was concealed from Jesus in the tomb. And Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb much the same way that God had called Adam out after he had sinned. Verse 44, the man who had died came out. His hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Now, it's important to understand the burial rituals of the Jews in this day were very different from ours. They would take a a body, uh, they would douse it in all kinds of perfumes, uh, they would wrap it tightly in linen cloth, and uh, as they wrapped it in the linen cloth, they would then take the body and they would place it in uh, a tomb. It would be like a cave, and they'd put a stone over it, and they would let the body decay. And it would take a period of time for that to happen. But then they would go back into the tomb, they would collect all the, the bones, and they would put it in a small uh, stone case called an ossuary. And that's where they would store the remains of their dead loved ones. That's why when Jesus was laid in a new tomb, what that you think, well, can you have a used tomb? Yes, you could, because there would be tombs where bodies would be laid and then they would be removed after a period of time. Jesus was laid in a, in a brand new tomb. So Lazarus had been prepared. He had been laid in the tomb. He was bound up in these grave clothes. His face was wrapped up. His hands were bound. His feet were bound. And here he comes, you know, walking out. I mean, you see these movies or images of it, and here he comes strutting out of the, strutting out of the grave. It wasn't like that at all. He was probably stumbling and tripping over himself. And so what did Jesus say? Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now, I want to camp out here for just a minute because I think this has a powerful message for those of us who find ourselves in a situation where we are still stumbling over all the same problems we had before we follow Jesus into this new life that he's offering. Do you remember when Adam was found by God, when God said, why were you hiding? Adam said, we're hiding because we were naked and we were ashamed. We were ashamed of being naked. And so what did God do? In the very first act of sacrifice, God took an animal, and he killed the animal, and he took the skin of the animal, and he made clothes, and he covered Adam's nakedness. But the very fact that Adam had to be clothed, and the very fact that all of us are here today are wearing clothes, which by the way, I'm very glad everybody is, But the very fact that we're wearing clothes is a reminder and a symbol of the shame of sin. Come on, there's something that we're always trying to cover up. We're always trying to present ourselves a little better than we actually are. That's why everybody looked in the mirror before you came, or at least most of you looked in the mirror before you came today. There's something that we're trying to cover up. God made the clothes, sacrificed an animal, and clothed Adam. Lazarus is coming out of the tomb. Don't miss this. He's coming out of the tomb, and he's clothed in the garments of death. He's wrapped up from head to foot, and Jesus commanded that those garments be stripped away, removing the garments that had become symbols of the curse of sin that led to death. And and Lazarus, as he is raised to life, He is going to be clothed in something different. He doesn't know this yet. The crowd doesn't know this yet. But Jesus himself, much like the animal that was sacrificed, Jesus himself is about to be sacrificed on the cross 
so that Lazarus and every one of us can follow Jesus out of death into life and be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That our shame can be covered by his righteousness. I love the old hymn on Christ the solid rock. The very last phrase of the very last verse says, clothed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. That you can stand before God and not be ashamed. Not because you've been good and not because you've been able to to rectify all the wrong things you've done, but because Jesus himself died that you could be clothed in his righteousness and stand faultless before God. That's the promise of the gospel. And so as Lazarus is coming out, Jesus says, strip off the grave clothes. Now, a couple observations about Lazarus' resurrection that I think have some important meaning for us today. The first one is this. The miracle of salvation is instant, but the miracle of transformation takes time. Some of you who have come to Christ, you you experienced an immediate sense of, of, of being accepted by God, and you were. That, that Jesus reached into your life, and, and he has made you right with God through your salvation. And that was an instant, instant thing that took place. But the transformation that Jesus wants to bring about in your life is something that will take a lot of time. When Jesus called you from death to life, like Lazarus, you saw also came out of the tomb wearing grave clothes. You also had the stink of death all over you. That is why church sometimes stinks. I'm serious. If we are a bunch of people who have been raised from death to life and we gather in one place, you are going to smell occasionally the stink of death. Because don't we all come in still carrying some of the grave clothes that we had? We're still bound by grave clothes. We're still blinded by grave clothes. And we come in and we stink. And so we come into a, as a bunch of people who's been raised from death to life, but we carry the grave clothes with us. But the second thing we need to know is this. The miracle of salvation is solely the work of God, but the miracle of transformation is a partnership. It's a partnership. Listen to what Paul said, Philippians chapter 2. He said, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Wait a minute, I thought Jesus' death on the cross was everything I needed to be made right with God. That's true. By grace through faith alone, you have received your salvation. But Paul says there's something else that has to go on. You have to continue to work out that salvation as Jesus is transforming you. It's a partnership between you and God. You don't come out of the grave smelling good. And so God invites you to be bathed in his word, to come into his community, allow other people to help strip off the grave clothes and to be made new. And that, re- that brings me to the second partnership. It's a partnership between you and God, and it's a partnership within the church. There would be a problem if the church didn't stink. Because it would mean that we're not reaching people who have been brought to new life. You know, actually, as a society, uh, we spend billions of dollars to make sure things don't stink. Billions of dollars. I mean, we buy all kinds of uh, deodorizers and, and incense, all kinds of things to do it. Yeah, I found this interesting on the Febreze website. This is what it said. Bad smells are the result of volatile molecules. Listen, you are sitting next to some volatile molecules all around you. I've got a few, and if you're honest, you have a few. But here's what we want to do in church. Come on. 
Here's what we want to do, because this is, this is what we do at our house. When something stinks in the Weber house, Sherry starts lighting candles. We start lighting candles. Listen, when you come to church and something stinks, the tendency is to say, let's just light some candles. The problem is lighting a candle does not remove the source of the odor. It requires something much more intensive. Somebody's going to have to take the trash out. Because a candle can only do so much. We would rather light candles than to, and cover up the smell. But Jesus called Lazarus' friends, he called the community, he called his family to gather around him and to strip off the burial rags. He brings us to the third point. Jesus raises the dead to life, but he expects the church to strip off the grave clothes. Notice he did not tell Lazarus when Lazarus got out of the tomb, hey Lazarus, why don't you take those grave clothes off? Who did he tell to do it? He told Mary and Martha and all those mourners who had gathered around there, hey, go strip off his grave clothes and set him free. That's what the church is called to do. But here's the problem. So many times as Christians, we in the church expect the newly raised to life to strip off their own grave clothes. And we wonder why they come stumbling out of the tomb, why they keep smelling like death. And we're saying, what's wrong? Just take your grave clothes off. When Jesus has called the church to surround folks and help them. But the other problem is that sometimes newly raised are too ashamed to take off their grave clothes. So you come here and you know you smell. You know you've got problems. You, you know that you've got your grave clothes. You know that your feet are bound. But you're too ashamed to let anybody get close enough to you. And so you continue to walk around with the smell of death all over you. So this morning, my question to you is what burial rags do you need to shed? What's still binding your feet? What's still binding your hand? What's still blinding your eyes? What in your life still stinks of death? And, and maybe for some of you, you, you've been questioning your faith in Jesus. Maybe, maybe it didn't work for me. Maybe it works for other people, but it didn't work for me. And today, I hope you're encouraged to hear that your salvation can be secure and you can still stink of death. You can still be bound by grave clothes. The invitation of Jesus is to take off the grave clothes, to come into a community where others can surround you and help to take the grave clothes off. I'm going to invite our musicians to come to the stage. We're going to have a song of invitation and commitment. And today we're going to do something a, a little different in our time of commitment. I'm going to invite you to bring uh, these grave clothes and to place it in this basket. But I'm only going to ask you to do that if, if you really mean to shed the grave clothes. If this is something that you know you're not ready to give up, I want you to hold on to that piece of fabric. And I want you to keep it somewhere where you're going to interact with it, maybe on a daily basis. And I want you to continue to pray that God will help you be freed from that grave cloth. For some of you, maybe you don't know what to write on there. Or maybe there's so much to write on there, you need another piece of fabric. Maybe you need to keep it this week and you need to keep praying and you need to ask God to show me, God, what in my life still stinks of death when I've been raised to walk in a new life? Some of you who are ready to get rid of it, the invitation is to bring it and place it here. For others of you, maybe you would just bring it and you would come to these steps and you would pray at these steps and you would let the body of Christ come around you like Mary and Martha and the community came around Lazarus to say, let me help you with that. Let me help to unbind you. 
and to set you free. I'm going to invite you to stand as we prepare to sing and to respond as the Holy Spirit leads you to respond. Father, we thank you today for the promise and the hope that we have in the resurrection. Lord, while our salvation takes an an instant, a moment of faith, the minute we reach out to Jesus, uh, much like Lazarus laying in the tomb, we're helpless and, and Jesus calls us out. But Lord, we've come out of the tomb and we continue to try to struggle through this life wearing the grave clothes and smelling of death. Lord, today I believe there are people who you're inviting to be set free. Lord, I ask that in this time you would move, that you'd move in my own heart and the hearts of the people who are here, that people would set aside their grave clothes and truly experience the fullness, the newness, the abundance of the life that Jesus offers. For it's in his name we pray.